Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings. His latest book is Because I Said So, the truth behind the myths, tales, and warnings every generation passes down to its kids. Many of these myths and warnings are culture-specific. We'll talk about the Korean fan death tale, which Jennings first encountered growing up in Seoul. Ken Jennings also grew up as a map nerd. We'll talk about his previous book, Maphead, charting the wide, weird world of geography wonks, in which he travels the nation, meeting others of his tribe, map librarians, publishers, road geeks, pint-sized National Geographic bee prodigies, and the computer geniuses behind Google Maps and other geotechnologies. Jennings says that technology and geographic illiteracy are increasingly insulating us from the lay of the land around us. We're going to need map heads more than ever. Ken Jennings, following the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for this hour is Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings. He's out with a new book, Because I Said So, the truth behind the myths, tales, and warnings every generation passes down to its kids. Many of these myths and warnings are culture-specific. We'll talk, among other things, about the Korean fan death tale, which Jennings first encountered growing up, part of his growing up years in Seoul. Ken Jennings also grew up as a map nerd. Uh, so described, uh, we'll talk about his previous book, Maphead, in which he travels the nation, meeting others of his tribe, map librarians, publishers, road geeks, pint-sized National Geographic bee prodigies, and the computer geniuses behind Google Maps and other geotechnologies. Jennings says that technology and geographic illiteracy are increasingly insulating us from the lay of the land around us. We're going to need map heads more than ever. Ken Jennings is author of a previous book, Brainiac, Adventures in the Curious, Competitive, Compulsive World of Trivia Buffs. That's about his record-breaking 2004 appearance on Jeopardy! As well as Ken Jennings' Trivia Almanac, 8,888 questions in 365 days. He lives outside Seattle with his wife Mindy, their two kids, and he says a deeply unstable Labrador retriever named Banjo. Ken Jennings, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, it's, it sounds like an intriguing home life with that unstable uh, Labrador. Okay. <laughs> it's less intriguing than you think. There's just more dog hair on everything. That's, that's about as intriguing as it gets. A uh, very interesting uh, book, uh, Because I Said So. Uh, I wonder how this uh, started. You, you recount this in, in the, the preface to the book, opening of the book. I wonder if you'd recount that for us. I, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, if you saw me on Jeopardy, you might think of me as a guy who knows all the answers, and I, I never felt that way as a parent, you know. Uh, as a parent, I would just tell my kids, you know, all these sort of sensible-sounding warnings, and I would really have, have no idea if they were true, and it, and it sort of got to me. My, uh, my son was running around with, my, uh, with a, a Tootsie Pop sticking out of his mouth one day when we were visiting my parents, and I said, no, 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 no you, you can't do that, that's dangerous. And he said, well, why is, why is a lollipop dangerous? And I said, well, because if you, if you fall, the lollipop could, you know, get embedded in your, your brain or something. And he was, you know, he was fascinated by this idea. He, he seemed so happy about this. But he, I, he didn't believe me. And I said, well, listen, this is what Grandma used to tell me when, when I was a kid. You, you tell him, you know, I, I turned to my mom for authority here. 
And she said, oh, I don't actually know either. That's just what Grandma used to tell us, you know. So I sort of realized these these uh, parental cliches just get handed down for generations and nobody ever actually fact-checks them. And I thought, I bet I could write that book. You know, I could. I, sh- I should figure out if it really is bad to sit too close to the TV or go swimming after you eat or crack your knuckles or whatever Whatever we are always nagging our children about. Uh, and so you so you did it. Uh, I understand with some some help. You did a little bit of crowdsourcing, uh, put out the word. Yeah, I, the hardest part of the book was actually not finding the uh, the research on these things because you know in the Google age anybody can anybody can find good academic research. But it was it was actually accumulating a list of 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 what people's parents were still telling them in this day and age. So I had you know I, once I made the list of of the ones from my childhood that was still not a book yet, and so I. I spent a year asking everybody I met, including people on the internet. You know, finally I, I asked the uh, the hive mind at uh, uh, websites like Reddit, and the last thirty or so of these parenting myths came from them. People reporting what their own parents had told them. Now there are, and you write this in your book, there are some safety lies. For example, the car won't run unless your seatbelts are on. That one, I guess that that could be a good one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, I, I find myself lying to my kids all the time, you know, for their own good. You know, I, I feel like I, it's more, it's safer to tell them that, or it's more compassionate to tell them that we sent their guinea pig to live on a farm or something, and it's it's festive to tell them that a fat man is going to come through the chimney and, and bring them their uh, gifts. And I guess I have nothing against any of these things, but I, I hated the feeling that I was lying accidentally, you know, mm-hmm. that I was... I was giving stern advice, and they were going to remember their whole lives, and it was just—it might just be bogus, you know. And something, I guess, some of these are propagated because, uh, you know, a parent blurts out something; it's uh, taken seriously by the child, and then they pass it on, and and their children pass it on as well. That's right. They just keep popping up every mm-hmm. generation, like one of these seventeen-year cicadas. Uh, and often, yeah, it's something that uh, you know you, you you weren't sure about, but wanted to. You have to seem authoritative with kids, of course. They're like bears, so you can't show any hesitation or doubt. And and maybe it was just something annoying, you know. Maybe it, uh, you know, maybe the kid was just popping his knuckles in the back of the car and driving you nuts. And so you said, no, no, no don't do that. You'll get arthritis when you're older. You don't really know, you know. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you just blurted it out. Uh, I do like your cheapskate lie. I had never thought of this. Uh, honey, when the ice cream man is playing music, it means his truck is all out of ice cream. <laughs> That's ingenious. Um, That's <laughs> That's a terrible thing, but I actually did have a friend whose parents would tell them, oh, I'm sorry, the truck's playing music. That means they're all out of popsicles. <laughs> yeah, it is terrible, but, it, but it's quite clever of the parent. Um, I wonder if you'd uh, maybe read us one or two of these. You, and uh, before you do that, I wonder, you say you had trouble fact-checking some of these. Others maybe were easier. And, and some of these, I guess it's surprising, but true that there are scientific papers on them. Yeah, I think a lot of these kids who were raised on this stuff, a lot of them went off to college and decided to do good case control studies on, uh, you know, the five-second rule, for example. Or uh, there was a guy who really did spend his whole life cracking the knuckles on his left hand but not his right many times a day just to see if there was any difference. And uh, and so now we have the research. Uh, amazing. I mean, by the way, the five-second rule, I've always wondered about that. Uh, yeah, there are a couple good studies now, and it turns out that there is no magical force field that protects food, as you might expect. You know, there's no magical force field that protects dropped food. If 
If your food lands on something gross, it's going to be gross after zero seconds. But if the dropped fruit snack or granola bar or whatever, uh, you know, lands on a clean patch of ground, which is typically the case when they do these studies, then, you know, it's going to be fine for, you know, for minutes or hours, not not a certain number of seconds. And, and there are actually studies on this. Yes, we're fine, actually. Uh, well, now that, uh, you know, now that it's much easier to Google academic research than, than ever before, you, you really do find that uh, I found at least 12 good studies on sugar and hyperactivity in children. It turns out sugar rush is a myth as well. No, that's a myth. Okay. So, yeah, so parents, can... don't, parents don't like to hear that one because it's much more <laughs> flattering to uh, to blame the cupcake or the punch for the, the terrible way their kids are acting mm. at the birthday party, but apparently not true. Okay. I wonder maybe if you could select one of these myths and, and read us. Give, an, give us an example. And by the way, at the end, you have a, a false or truth meter uh, showing yeah, either... For each one, I try to I try to come up with a verdict on uh, on whether the the myth is true or false, and you know sometimes it's it's somewhere in between. It's true with an if or and with a but or uh, uh, if I could read the one on uh, Halloween candy, maybe. All, all right, all right. My because uh, my parents would always uh, would always say, you know, don't touch your Halloween candy until we get it checked out, because you know there's always some sicko out there poisoning random trick or treaters. Uh, the boogeyman of contemporary Halloween celebrations aren't ghosts and vampires and cackling witches, unfortunately. Instead, kids are spooked by a series of much more prosaic stories, the strychnine in the M&Ms or the razor blade in the candy apple. My childhood Halloweens came right on the heels of the infamous Tylenol tampering scare of 1982 when poisoned consumer products were on everybody's mind. As a result, I never got to eat a single piece of Halloween candy until Mom and Dad had gone over the whole bag looking for needle marks and razor blades and other imagined Viet Cong booby traps. And I realize now in hindsight, stealing all the Snickers. My parents weren't the only ones. Since this hysteria reached its height in the 1980s and 90s, many hospitals, fire stations, and police stations have begun examining and x-raying candy for nervous parents. The National Confectioners Association, a.k.a. Big Candy, began an annual hotline to field reports of tainted treats. It's become common knowledge that these threats exist, that they're widespread even. But in reality, here are some things that are more widespread than Halloween poisonings. Uh, death by elephant stampede, uh, octuplets, uh, being hit by a meteorite. That's because there hasn't been a single reported case of a mad Halloween poisoner in history. Sure, newspapers have been whipping up Halloween hysteria since the late 20s, sorry, sorry the late 50s. But read one of these scare pieces with a more critical eye and you'll get giggles, not chills. A typical AP attempt from 1982 restlessly warns parents that some Mount Holly, New Jersey residents recently reported a burning sensation after eating a Reese's peanut butter cup. Not to mention a discount store in Germantown, Tennessee, that called the cops when a syringe was found near a Halloween candy display. Really, let's be honest, how many Tennessee dollar stores don't have a used needle lying around in one aisle or another? Fresno sociology professor Joel Best has made a career out of debunking Halloween hype. He made a list of 72 poisoning cases reported by the media since 1958 and methodically followed up on each one. Not one turned out to be the work of a mythical mad poisoner. It turns out there were two uh, deaths of children that, in which someone had used the urban legend to camouflage a very different crime. But in other words, there have been two more fake candy deaths in Halloween history than real ones. In many, many more cases, a child became ill or died from some totally unrelated cause around the holiday, leading to panic, unnecessary product recalls, and even police confiscation of trick-or-treat bags. 
So this is what it's come to, a world where most of my kids' friends attend a local trunk or treat in a church parking lot instead of going door-to-door. Uh, trunk or treating, for those who don't know, is just like trick-or-treating, except with cars instead of houses, lame decorations instead of awesome ones, and no fun instead of fun. And all because of a bunch of stuff that never actually happened. When I was a kid, we knew who the real Halloween menaces were. The dentist on the next block who gave out toothbrushes instead of candy. Uh, anyone who gave out candy corn or uh, worse, circus peanuts. We knew that nobody would ever actually poison circus peanuts. What would be the point? How could you make them worse than they already are? And uh, so the verdict meter at the end of this one reads, false. It's, it's never been true that uh, we need to check our kids' Halloween candy. Mm. Yeah, I like the reference uh, you made to the, the dentist that hands out toothbrushes. You avoid, avoid him like the plague. There's one in every neighborhood. Uh, yeah, the word, word gets around very quick among kids which houses are skippable, yeah. that's for sure. Okay, so that one is false. And, and there, there are a bunch of these, uh, some very interesting ones that I'll, I'll ask you in a, in a couple of minutes about uh, a couple that have bothered me over the years. Uh, get your verdict on that. I wonder, uh, in the age of helicopter parents, and you, you've talked about this, is, is this phenomenon getting worse? It, parents are becoming very, very protective. Yeah, I, I don't think this is the only reason, but yeah, I think sort of the gradual accumulation of these over the years, you know, not not only all this, the warnings you heard as a kid, which you have to repeat, but then any new ones that occur to you, I think that's one reason why, why parents increasingly feel overwhelmed by what a dangerous place the world is for kids, and they have to, they have to cushion and, and, uh, and guard them at every turn, when, uh, in fact, statistically, um, it's actually a pretty safe time to be raising kids. And, uh, and I, maybe we're not doing our kids any favors by not letting them uh, explore or do sort of, uh, you know, mildly adventurous things just out of, uh, out of paranoia and, you know, bad parental risk assessment. I, I think our kids are going to be healthier grownups if we actually, you know, let them be kids and, and, and play and, uh, and not worry so much about, you know, all these sort of long-shot worries. I was watching a, a talk you gave at uh, Google. It was a very interesting uh, lunchtime talk. I guess they have a series of these uh, talks. You talked about these helicopter parents and uh, talked about mommy cams in the dorms and uh, even companies giving out parental packets for the interviews. I guess mom and dad's coming to the interview now? Yeah, there's a Time cover story on this not long ago, and it just had many shocking anecdotes like that, you know, that the colleges knew that mom and dad would want to watch their kids online in the dorms and that... Uh, uh, you know, these big, big accounting firms would have to negotiate with uh, <laughs> with their new, you know, college graduate hires parents who are who are showing up in the interview full of questions about 401k and stuff. And I thought, no, this can't be good for these kids. Um, you know, we got we got to let them grow up sometime. Hmm. And talking to strangers, this is this is something I, I believe you've 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 debunked. And this is something we all hear: don't, don't talk to strangers. Yeah, I mean, because what, what, it seems like the most sensible parental advice ever, right? Who could argue with, with don't talk to strangers? But child safety organizations now say that's, that's not the way to teach kids. They've had too many cases where a kid uh, got lost and then, you know, was so fearful of, of adults that he actually hid from his would-be rescuers. Um, there's a, a Boy Scout in Utah that sort of kept hiding off the trail whenever the search parties would come through because he was afraid, uh-oh, they're strangers. And, in fact, what you need to do is empower kids to to look for help on their own. Tell them the best way to seek adult help. You know, ask a, ask a store employee, ask another mom with kids, you know, uh, not, to, not to scare them about strangers for no reason, because really it's a, 
this idea that, that random kidnappers are stealing our kids is actually an incredibly rare occurrence. Um, but, but you know, to teach them how to get themselves out of the, out of the trouble themselves, and that's you know, I, I think that's probably a better way to raise kids. We're talking for the hour with Ken Jennings. Of course, he's a record-setting Jeopardy! champion, and he's written several books now. The latest is Because I Said So, The Truth Behind the Myths, Tales, and Warnings Every Generation Passes to Its Kids. We'll also be talking about his uh, previous book, Maphead, which he travels the nation meeting uh, map heads, map geeks, including the geniuses behind Google Maps. We'll, we'll ask if we've lost something in the age of Google Earth, or, or it is uh, what's gained out to weigh what's lost in the romanticism of opening the old Rand McNally uh, atlas. When we come back from a break, uh, we're, I'm going to ask uh, Ken Jennings about uh, fascinating uh, glimpses into culture and these uh, myths which we pass down to our kids, that's not unique to our culture, of course. And uh, Ken Jennings apparently lived for a time in South Korea where he encountered the great fan menace. This is an actual uh, belief among many in, in Korea uh, that uh, you, have to, uh, you have to have the window uh, cracked uh, to use an electric fan. If you don't, trouble will ensue, even perhaps death. When we come back, we'll uh, look into some cultures through this prism with Ken Jennings. Waste not. Install a rain sensor on your irrigation controller so your system won't run when it's raining. Also, install water-wise fixtures and appliances. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org/publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing at 630 West, 200 North, Logan. Personalized printing for home or business, including wedding announcements, thank you cards, family history labels, and notepads. Information at squareoneprinting.com. You're listening to Access Utah. We're on uh, tape this part of the program. Uh, or the, the entire hour, I should say, but you can still comment. You can go to our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio, or you can comment at upraxis at gmail.com. We'll get your uh, comment on at the next break, upraxis at gmail.com. I wanted to get these comments in from our Facebook page, uh, Utah Public Radio, by the way. Uh, Joseph Anderson uh, comments about Ken Jennings. And in fact, I believe Joseph Anderson works for the Logan Library, and he, he puts a plug in. He gives a link to uh, the books of Ken Jennings that you can find at the Logan Library. Uh, so that's a great uh, reminder. If you uh, don't want to buy the book, uh, you can uh, check out any of Ken Jennings' books at the Logan Library. And at the end of that list of books, you can follow that link by going to our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio. Uh, for some reason... Uh, at the end of that list, there's highlights from Sweeney Todd, a sound recording. Stephen Sondheim's great uh, musical. Uh, perhaps I can only surmise that uh, somebody named Ken Jennings is involved with that uh, with that sound recording. And then here's what uh, Sean Bliss responds to Joseph Anderson's post. He said, Joseph, did you sneak in that Sweeney Todd record just because you knew I'd be uh, clicking on your link? So we're having some fun with uh, Ken Jennings and linking to the Logan Library. That's a great idea. Uh, more with Ken Jennings next. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings. He's written several books now. The latest is Because I Said So, the truth behind the myths, tales, and warnings every generation passes down to its kids. A previous book, Maphead, 
uh, has him traveling the nation, meeting other map heads, librarians, publishers, road geeks, uh, National Geographic uh, B prodigies. We're going to be talking about that a little later, including uh, such phenomena as triple islands and terra nullis and enclaves. We'll talk about uh, map romantics and geocaching, which Ken Jennings has uh, gotten into in a big way, I understand. I understand from, I was reading an article that you wrote in the Slate magazine, Ken Jennings, uh, that you uh, grew up at least part of your childhood in Seoul, South Korea? Uh, yeah, we lived there for, for 10 or 11 years or so, actually. Interesting. So, uh, what was the culture like? Uh, it was really interesting. You know, this was the early 80s, and Korea, pretty, Seoul pretty much looked like it had at the end of the Korean War. You know, the, the big Asian economic miracle hadn't happened yet, and you really did get the sense that you were... You were someplace very different, but we uh, we loved it. You know, uh, mm. loved living there. Lo- a great way to grow up, and uh, still visit often. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and I wonder if that fueled your your passion for learning about geography. Uh, definitely. You know, not just uh, you know, not just wanting to understand this new part of the world we suddenly landed in at age. I guess I was seven years old, but also uh, you know, also wanting to see maps of the U.S. You know, wanting to to, to look at the little highways and, and byways of the the home country that, that I was missing, where, where we weren't living. Um, so it was both. It wasn't just roadmaps of exotic Asia. It was also, you know, wanting to see Delaware also. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, uh, I don't know if Koreans know that you spent some 10 years in their country, and, and when you hit big on Jeopardy, I wonder if there were <laughs> Ken Jennings fan clubs back in Korea. <laughs> I think I, I, someone did send me a clipping from a Korean newspaper. I don't, I don't know if they consider me an honorary part of the tribe or uh, or not. Um <laughs> Certainly, I can see why they wouldn't if uh, if they don't. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about uh, this this very interesting phenomenon. Of course, uh, all cultures probably have these myths that we pass down from parent to child. For example, I was interested to learn Germans and Austrians have a, a fear of drafts. That has real world <laughs> real world implications when you get on a train in the summer in one of those yeah, countries. Yeah, uh, I've talked to, to travelers who have said you know they don't want to ride public transportation in, in, you know, in Germany and Central Europe in the summer because uh, people do sort of have this deathly fear of draft. I think it's especially the older generation that they sort of blame all health problems on, uh, on open windows. And so uh, you know, no matter how hot the day, people will, will always close the window. These, these, uh, these sort of common knowledge parenting ideas do seem to be very culturally specific. And, and of course, Korea, it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And, and so tell me about this, the, the fan death. This is a very real thing, apparently, the, the real belief that's passed down, parent to child. The, the concern is you better have the window cracked if you use an electric fan. Otherwise, uh, there'll be trouble? Yeah, uh, Korean children are told very seriously and, and go on to believe it as adults that, uh, that you need to crack a window when you have a fan on. Otherwise, somehow the fan will... Uh, the, the cool air blowing on you or away from you or something will, will lead to uh, suffocation or sometimes uh, hypothermia is uh, suggested. Um, this appears to go back to the 1920s, you know, almost as long as there has been electricity in Korea. And, uh, and in the, until as recently as a few years ago, it was being backed up by the government. You know, the government would, would uh, require warnings on fans. Fans come with automatic shutoff timers and and medical authorities very seriously tell people, okay, summer's coming. This is one of the, the leading causes of death in summer. Make sure you don't turn on a fan in a, in a closed room. Is there some, as you call it, is there some er event, some event that happened, which uh, maybe a, had some truth to it that, that started all this? Well, you know, there's, uh, 
there's certainly uh, not just in Korea but worldwide people now understand that during during heat waves fans are not a good way to to stay cool in fact that they can make uh, they can cause a convection effect that actually can make heat stress and dehydration even worse you know um, but I don't think the Korean belief comes from that idea uh, it, just the fact that it goes back so far and uh, and, and suggests actually you know suffocation um, Maybe you know maybe there was some some accident that happened once, and, a, and someone, some early medical examiner said, "Oh, look, one of these newfangled fans was turned on." Um, but for example, that's what happened in the U.S. with poinsettias. We still believe that poinsettias are poisonous because of of one misdiagnosis in Hawaii in, in 1919. But uh, you know, I, I think that's shrouded in the mists of time. I think we're we're never going to know why Koreans have this uh, you know unusual relationship with electric fans that no other culture does. And this this led an interesting arc to this led to f- some fan death trutherism, as you as you write. Yeah, there, I, I found Korean bloggers who have gotten the problem is this became a meme on the internet. You know, this was a very obscure idea for for decades that that Koreans had a, a, an extra caution about fan death that other cultures did not have. But once the internet started spreading this around, it sort of became a punchline, especially among Westerners. And uh, I found. Uh, some Koreans who are annoyed by this, a Korean blogger who uh, who has d- devoted part of his website to trying to, to prove that fan death is actually a, a real, rational um, belief. And, uh, you know, it is, you know, it reads a lot like any other conspiracy website. But I do understand the urge. You know, no one likes to see their culture treated as a, as a punchline. Mm-hmm. Now, some uh, this is fading somewhat to, to, due to internet skepticism, which maybe is having an effect here. That's what I found. I, you know, when I I sort of surveyed some young people I knew in Korea, and almost to a to a man or woman, they all said, uh, "Yeah, my, I think my parents used to believe that, but that's dumb, right?" You know, they the Google or whatever it is had sort of turned us all into into skeptics, and. Uh, even uh, I even talked to one uh, expatriate over there, a, a Canadian who had who had put up the first website, sort of decrying the uh, the silliness of fan death. And the funny thing is, he now says uh, he feels bad about putting that up. He's lived in Korea now for decades, and sort of feels like he was he was uh, arrogant, an arrogant Westerner when he put up his site making fun of fan death. And in fact, now he considers himself something of a, of a believer. You know, he's he's actually gone the other way, and now he he too believes that electric fans are dangerous. So. Hmm. I guess uh, I guess it goes both ways. And and you know I don't mean to pick on on Korea. This was just so interesting, and I hadn't hadn't known about it. Of course, every culture has has these. I wondered, it, can you learn anything about a culture from their myths? I, you know, I just sort of wonder what this uh, what this says about uh, Korea. You know, I'm, perhaps one thing it says is that. Uh, you know, respective authority and hierarchy is very important there, so that when the government puts out a, a, a warning about fan death, you're less likely to have people being like, what? That sounds dumb, you know? Um, and, it, and of course, it may date, you know, the fact that it goes, does go back to the 20s means that, you know, this, this may relate to other sort of ideas about Eastern traditional medicine that, that we don't have. Um, but yeah, the point is that every culture has these silly things, you know, and I have friends who have lived in Russia, and they were told never to sit on a cold bench, or they would, they would go sterile. Um, they, they probably think it's just as silly that we tell our kids not to swim after, after eating. Um, I, I still know people in this country who tell their kids to feed a cold and starve a fever, and that's something that's been that goes back to the old humor-based theory of medicine with bile and blood and phlegm and whatnot, and that's been 
that's been debunked since the Renaissance, and yet we're still saying it. So, you know, these superstitions take a long time to die, and you know, it's not like it's not like ours are any less sensible than theirs, or more sensible than theirs. Yeah, and I think uh, in our culture, of course, we've, we've encountered this. We grew up with this because mom and dad told us these things. And if you look at some of the other culture, we haven't been familiar with them. For example, you write uh, Filipino kids are warned they shouldn't wear red when it's stormy out. I had a Filipino friend tell me this. Uh, red is the color that attracts lightning. So they had a parent who uh, who always made was very careful to, to dress them in other colors on a rainy day because they don't, you know, otherwise they'd get hit by lightning. And, and when it's your and when it's your parents, you take these things very very seriously. A, ra- a radio producer, uh, when I was promoting the book last month, wanted to know: Is it really true that you shouldn't cut your nails when your uh, relatives are in a plane because cutting your nails will somehow make the plane crash? Hmm. And she she took this very seriously because I guess it, it it's what a her Russian grandma or, or mom or something had told her as a kid. And so you know, when these things are formative, they tend to stick with us no matter how silly. By the way, uh, in, in this talk at Google, you mentioned that uh, your son read the, you know, read the book in its early forms. Now it's had an effect on him. He he now you know knows that some of these things are bogus. And uh, I wonder how your wife feels about this. Yeah, he is almost too smart a smart cookie now. He uh, he got an advanced copy of because I said so as soon as they sent me the galleys and he read it cover to cover and uh, and now you can't tell him anything. Like I, my wife would you know peek in and to his room at night, and he'd be reading the book, and she'd be like, it's too dark in here to read, go to sleep. And he'd be like, no, no, no that's not true, that's in Dad's book. It's uh, a reading in the dark just causes temporary eye strain, but no no permanent ill effect, you know, so now he's the expert on everything. My wife is not such a such a big fan. If, if you do have kids and you buy the book, maybe keep it on a keep it on a high shelf, keep it up on the Fifty Shades of Grey shelf, and, and do not let the kids know too much too soon. Well, that's just a, that's just an invitation for the kids, you know, because if you try to hide it, the kids will find it, but <laughs> that's um, true. That's true. Maybe, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe don't make a big deal. Good point. So I guess this is, you would think this is a good thing for kids to actually know the truth. Some of these, however, myths, lies, you might call them, maybe have been made parenting a little easier, though. You know, I think so. I, uh, you know, I, I some, and some of them do turn out to be true. We, we should hasten to say, you know, they're, there's good research now showing that some of these superstitions have good medical basis. You know, chicken soup actually is better at treating cold symptoms than almost anything else that, that people test. Uh, something about the proteins in the soup, I guess. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, not all of them, and, and, and many of them are useful, again, just because they cut down on an annoying behavior. You know, you can, you can tell your kids that knock-knock jokes cause colon cancer, and... Uh, it might it might make your home life less annoying, you know, for a few minutes, but uh, a kid might actually believe that for the next 50 years. Yeah, I guess that's the danger, yeah. Oh, before we leave this, and I want to get, get in and talk to him uh, about MapHead, this is a very interesting world of, of, of map geeks, you might, might call them. I think you, you call them that, so I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, uh, before we leave, because I said so, this is one that really has bugged me over the years. Uh, the one about uh, getting your feet wet or getting cold and getting a, and getting a cold. I mean, you, you know, the, the two words are the same, but uh, growing up, I always thought uh, it's a virus. It can't have anything to do with getting cold, can it? And you address this. Yeah, I think we all learn about viruses in school, and we think, well, what was Mom talking about telling us not to, you know, to go outside with wet hair or to make sure we wear boots so our feet don't get wet? I mean, that doesn't – how could that cause you to get a virus? And it turns out that the uh, the reason why – colds and flu spread in the fall and winter is still not well understood. You know, um, 
there have been a lot of tests where the, the temperature at which people's noses got dabbed with a virus-infected mucus, this is how they do it in the lab, I guess, uh, the temperature did not affect whether or not they caught the cold. But there is now new research out of Wales in which people's, uh, they, they set up the experiment a little differently. They had people dip their feet in cold water for 20 minutes, and then they would see which group got, was more likely to just catch a cold naturally over the next few weeks, uh, whether the, the people who had caught a chill or not. And uh, there seems to be now considerable evidence that, that these people who dipped their feet in cold water were more likely to get a cold. You know, something about being cold seems to weaken your, your immune system, and uh, it's not well understood, but Mom may have been right all those years when she said not to go outside with wet hair or, or, or whatever the superstition was that you, that you scoffed at. So, so that one's true. I believe there is now some evidence for that for the first time. Okay. Well, who knew? Who knew? Uh, by the way, I'd like to get onto MapHead, and uh, we'll just let people read the passage about uh, swallowing gum. It's uh, it's fascinating and and a little bit gross. The <laughs> your, yeah, yeah, your explanation. Yeah, I intentionally don't read that one at readings anymore because uh, <laughs> I read that one at Google, and people were eating their lunches when they were reading about how gum has to be manually extracted from the human body, and uh, it looked like it. It looks like it was not good for anybody's appetite. The, the bottom line is that that's generally not true, right? Unless you eat a lo- unless you happen to swallow a lot of gum. Yeah, there, generally your body will get rid of gum in the normal way. It does not sit in your stomach for seven years. So there have been cases where pe- kids swallowed gum compulsively, and then they did get a bit clogged up with with disastrous but but colorful hmm. results for the. Uh, <laughs> the doctor performing the manual extraction. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking with Ken Jennings. He's, of course, Jeopardy! champion. He's out with several books. Uh, the latest is Because I Said So, the truth behind the myths, tales, and warnings every generation passes down to its kids. And uh, a previous book is Maphead, where he uh, goes into the world of uh, map heads, map, map geeks, people who love maps. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about this book, including... Um, a, a contest where you don't leave your home, you just follow the maps. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the, the romance of maps in the world of uh, now of Google Earth. More with Ken Jennings following the break. What do the opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth and a rabbit named Oolong balancing a pancake on his head have in common? They're memes, units of culture that are imitated and, as a result, copied from one brain to another. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge, why we are all meme machines. It's To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Human Resources. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. You're listening to Access Utah. Our guest for the hour is Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings. He's out with a new book, Because I Said So, The Truth Behind the Myths, Tales, and Warnings Every Generation Passes Down to Its Kids. Uh, and uh, his previous book is Maphead where he travels the nation meeting uh, others of his tribe. He grew up, he says, as a, as a map nerd. Uh, map librarians, publishers, road geeks, National Geographic, bee prodigies, computer geniuses behind Google Maps. We'll talk about geocaching as well and the romance of uh, maps. Uh, I believe uh, you've described this, Ken Jennings, uh, our age, uh, as the golden age of maps. 
you know, I, I think that is true in a way, which is funny because when you read about geography in the paper, it's always about how terrible we are at it. You know, our kids can't find Canada. They can't find the – got all these college kids that can't find the Pacific Ocean on a map. But, uh, but when you think about how maps have been essentially the same, you know, for 500 years, you know, a big piece of paper with lines for roads and blue for water – and now suddenly we have these digital tools. You know, now suddenly you've got Google Earth. You've got uh, you know the most detailed map of the world possible in your pocket at all times. Um, you know, I think this has the potential to be a huge sea change for maps. You know, think about a kid who who now when he looks at a map, it's not a boring uh, road atlas, but now it's uh, you know it's it's a map where you can go through the swoop through the Grand Canyon in 3D, where you can watch weather and traffic moving across the map in real time. You. You might have an app where you can see your friends moving across the map, like a, you know, like a little magical Harry Potter spell, except it's, a, it's an app on your phone. Um, and I, you know, I feel like for the first time in 500 years, maps actually are cool and, uh, and maybe, even, like maybe even a little bit sexy. And, uh, and I hope that changes how the next generation sees them. Now, growing up, I think well, you were very young when you requested for your, I guess, your birthday, a, a Rand McNally Atlas. Yeah, I was... Uh, I saved up my allowance for months. To buy oh, oh, so you bought it? Atlas. Yeah, okay. I, I, I got a, I, I later got one from my grandparents for I think it was a Christmas present. But uh, I remember the first one I, I had, I, I saved up for months for, and I, I would often fall asleep reading it. You know, because I could read it for for pleasure, the way a normal kid would read a Hardy Boys book or whatever. And so, mm. it would often wind up, you know, sleeping with me next to my pillow at night instead of a <laughs> instead of a teddy bear or something. I was a I was a very odd kid and. And the math head book sort of came out of that, a desire to figure out what, what was up with that. Why are some kids like this? And, and why are some kids like this? What's the attraction? I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, some of it's just a, a genetic thing. You know, some kids have a very good spatial sense that allows them to look at a map and just imagine an armchair adventure. You know, other people will look at a map of a, of a parking lot and be confused and not be able to remember where their car is, and they'll panic. These people associate maps with getting lost. But for, for a kid with a, you know, with the ability to sort of enter the map and, uh, and imagine sailing down that river or uh, hiking through that jungle, you know, a, a map is an adventure. And, and I think it's also a mastery. You know, a, a, kid, a kid is so close to the ground. You know, a little kid has no idea what's going on in the larger world. And I remember that was, that was a very appealing idea for me to be able to look at a map and see this big God's eye view and to know the next town we were going to get to on the highway and to be able to to tell mom or dad when they took the wrong exit ramp on the road trip, that's, that's just a very uh, appealing sense of authority to a little kid who, who so often can't even, you know, see over the couch, much less the next county. Part of the romance here is, is the mystery, right, the exploration. And I wonder if there's something lost with, say, Google Earth and any satellite images of every inch of the Earth, and, and, you know, you can plug in coordinates and automatically it guides you to wherever you want to go. Yeah, I think so. You know, there was certainly an age, maybe just, uh, you know, in this this uh, past 100 years where maps would have big open empty spaces where people would still have to draw elephants or sea serpents or, or clipper ships or whatever. And you, you could get the idea that there were still unexplored frontiers out there. And then someday you could go there and see what was in the blank spaces. And, and then today, you're right, we don't have that. You know, today you look at Siberia on Google Earth and Every little marsh is mapped out in, in depressing detail, and you can see why the map is empty. It's, it's not because there's mystery there. It's because there's nothing there. It's, it's, it's 
it sort of sucks and nobody goes there <laughs> and uh and that's sort of sad you know but but i guess that's the that's the progress of of exploration it it it, it turns a frontier into a into a more orderly place and uh but you know, but that's where a lot of these hobbyists I wrote the book about come at maps from. They're they're trying to reinvent that sense of adventure and make maps, you know, into a into a into a treasure quest again, um, even in a world where everything's been well mapped. So they they have to make up their own little hobbies. And there, there is a contest, a, a mail-in contest, where you're you're supposed to chart the correct route uh, purely on maps. You don't leave your house. Yeah, it's like one of these. It's like one of these road rallies, right? That people used to do where they'd. You know, they'd be in teams driving down the highway and then have to follow these sort of labyrinthine instructions to, to follow very specific routes and to, uh, you know, figure out all the traps and the mysteries. And uh, But the fact is these people do it all on a random McNally Road, Alice. Uh, every year this guy runs this event called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre where hundreds or thousands of map nerds, you know, spend the whole spring just pouring over uh, not real highways, but little blue lines on a Rand McNally map and trying to make their way from coast to coast and avoid all the tricks and traps. And I, I tried this with my kids, and it turned out to be just as bad, if not worse, than a, than a long road trip with your kids. You know, they, they had no patience for it, but I, I thought it was pretty great. <laughs> well, well, good on you for trying to involve your kids. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I want them to be like me. I, you know, I want them to grow up not being confused by maps and to actually, you know, be able to to find Europe on a map. I I sort of feel like uh, you know I don't want them to be part of the problem of a, of a generation that you know how are you supposed to understand anything about the world if you can't even find Iraq or Afghanistan or, or wherever it is on a map? That, that boggles my mind. Now you uh, of course you uh, you you went to a national uh, geography bee right. And in a in a world where we're continually told that uh, teenagers uh, are are getting worse and worse in geography, of course these are these are kids who are very good at it. I wonder what you can tell us about these particular this particular slice of of that demographic. It did give me hope, you know, because you see these uh, kids. It's just like if you can't picture this. National Geographic runs this every spring. It's just like the spelling bee, except instead of spelling words, they're they're answering you know questions about the world, which you know is actually a little more useful than a spelling bee when you think about it, because, you know, you, the best spelling bee kid in the world is, is not as good as my word processor spell check. And, and, uh, and this is actually a useful skill, I think, knowing, you know, where places are and, and what goes on there. And uh, I was just floored by these kids. I thought I was a map geek, and uh, these kids just know everything. They, they literally, I've, many of them say they literally run out of things to study. These are 10- or 11-year-old kids. And they've read every atlas in the library cover to cover. They know every fact on every page and every map, and that's what bothers them. They've run out of new facts to learn. Often it's often it's very hard to get them to miss a question, just because they know the world in seemingly every detail. It was remarkable. What what, what drives them? What what motivates them? And I guess a related question is the, the special skills about the way their their brain is wired. I don't know. Yeah, I think they. Uh, I think they sort of have this this spatial sense where the map comes alive, and uh, and I think more to the point, they like the sense of detail. You know, a, a page of an atlas is just so dense with information about the world. I was reading an atlas was the first time as a kid I ever thought, you know, wow, this is so great. You know, there's so much to know out there. Um, you know, what could be more fun than that? And I, I think you could sort of trace, you know, me being on Jeopardy to me opening that first atlas in a in a Seattle Public Library when I was, uh, you know, five or six or whatever, and uh, and I think it's the same for these kids. You know, they 
they're hungry to know about the world and, and geography is just an excuse for that. It's not it's not the boring old fourth grade geography of drawing mountain ranges and you know, and, and memorizing state capitals. It's actually actually just wanting to, to understand the world in every detail. Uh, pulling back out more generally the world of map heads, is there an element of obsession here? I, I, I think so. I, I think there's an element of probably some diagnosable kind of obsession in many of these people, some OCD issue or, uh, you know, somewhere on the autism spectrum. They're, they're almost uniformly very nice people, but... Uh, they, they get into the level of detail of maps in a way that even I think is a little uh, kooky. I, I spent a day with some road geeks. These are people that are obsessed with the U.S. interstate system. And uh, no detail is too small for these people. They, they notice when the typeface changes, when the Department of Transportation changes the typeface on our, on our freeway signs. They can see the little G. The tail of the G is shorter, and they all have opinions on whether that's good or bad. And they can tell a GE uh, street lamp apart from a Westinghouse one from half a mile away. They, they like to drive every mile on, on a highway because they, they consider that clinching it. They've added it to their collection if they, if they drive every mile of a certain road and they, they get annoyed when the numbers aren't sequential and they take pictures of every off-ramp and every exit sign. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I applaud their dedication to this, but I, I can't say I understand it. Hmm. And some people... Uh get into mapping fictional worlds. I wonder if you could tell me about, uh, I hadn't heard of him, but uh, in your book, Austin Tappan Wright. Uh, Austin Tappan Wright is almost forgotten now. I, I, his books have always been in print. He's best known for this book called Icelandia, or Islandia. It's like island with an IA, which he wrote uh, in the days, uh, I think right before uh, World War II. Um, and what a, essentially it's a travelogue of this country that doesn't exist, you know, in, in every detail. It's customs, it's, uh, it's coastline, it's, uh, it's history, it's uh, odd laws. And, uh, and the, the thrill of the book was, uh, there's, there's almost no plot. The thrill of the book is just this unusual place and the, the power of his imagination. And, you know, people couldn't uh, vacation to Europe because of the war, so they would go on a vacation to, uh, to Islandia, this, this imaginary South Pacific spot in the book. And the funny thing about the author is he actually lived in this place. He, he had created this imaginary country as a kid, and he invented all the languages wholesale. And it, I almost think he wasn't aware of it as an act of creation. Part of him was actually living there at all times. His, his family would remember him looking at a landscape here in the real world, and he would often say, you know, this reminds me of, of, of Islandia. You know, part of him was from there, and... Uh, and still lives there even today. And, and I've, I've been writing the book. I met kids who do the same thing, who have this, who have this fantasy world on a stack of notebooks in their bedroom, and, and that's part of where they live. This is also a, a touching story of devotion. Yet his widow, I believe, typed up his materials and submitted them to publishers. Yeah, he never published this during his lifetime. It was just sort of a, a vanity project. He had this stack of manuscripts, uh, you know, as, as tall as his desk, where he would write down every detail about this country. And after he dies. His wife uh, sort of condenses it into an actual book, all her husband's knowledge about this non-existent place, and uh, shops it around the publishers, and it becomes a huge bestseller. Mm. Uh, and I believe uh, this is a time, a reviewer in time, he called it perhaps the most sustained and detailed daydream that has ever seen print. Uh, pretty apt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Fellowship of the Ring, you know, many people asked him at the time, have you read I Islandia? Because it seemed to them to be the same sort of thing, creating this whole continent in great detail. And he said that, that no, he hasn't, but 
But today, thanks to Tolkien and this epic fantasy genre, we have this whole part of the bookstore, which is pretty much, uh, you know, writers creating and readers visiting, you know, these these new geographic worlds in extraordinary detail. And that's that's a huge part of of the fun of the book. I think it's no coincidence that the Game of Thrones HBO show begins with a, a journey across a map. That's that's what these readers want. They want to, to feel like they're in a new world. Tell me about geocaching. I understand you've gotten into this. Yeah, this was a this was a kind of, of map geekery that I got very into, possibly in a dangerous, a dangerously yeah, obsessive sense. I these people uh, use GPS technology, you know, these handheld devices, to uh, just multi-million dollar or military satellites to find little pieces of Tupperware that have been hidden in the woods. It's like a uh, like a treasure hunt. Um, so all you have is the numbers. You have the latitude and longitude of where the treasure is. And again, typically it's no more than a little box with a log you can sign and maybe some Cracker Jack toys to to swap. And uh, there are now almost two million of them worldwide. And uh, and I became very obsessed with it. it. Just looking at the map and seeing all these little unfound treasures really got to me. And I, I for months, I, you know, would, I'd be forcing my kids to go out geocaching with me. You know, come on, you get, we got to just get one more. And they'd be like, Dad, let's go home. <laughs> uh, I wonder, uh, there's some very interesting uh, geographic um, oddities that, uh, you know, I'm sure map heads get into. Uh, we only have time for one. Maybe you could quickly ter- tell us what Terra Nullis is and what, what the good example of that is. Ter- Terra Nullius, uh, land belonging to no one, sort of like uh, Antarctica. You know, by international treaty, it, it you know no country is is sovereign there, and there's really almost no examples of this in the world anymore because you know real estate's at a premium. But uh, one example I didn't know about is a little diamond of land in the Sahara called Bir Tawil, between uh, Egypt and the Sudan. And uh, if you look at maps of, of of Egypt, you'll see that southern border has this little weird diamond, and maps don't always agree. There were there were two treaties back when the British were carving up North Africa. And uh, in one version, Egypt owns that land. In another version, Sudan owns that land. But instead of fighting over it, they both fight not to have it because whoever doesn't have that land gets to control this other little patch of land called the Halayib Triangle, which is much better. You know, it's got natural resources. It's got a coastline. And, uh, and as a result, nobody wants poor Bir Tawil. It's this little tiny parallelogram in the middle of the Sahara that nobody owns. So if if anybody wants to start up a little, uh, any James Bond villains out there want to start up their own, their own little nation state, uh, no one controls Beer to Will. Uh, and a very interesting uh, other uh, oddities like enclaves and triple islands. Uh, you'll have to, to get into uh, get into the book to, to learn about some of these things. Uh, Maphead is is the previous book. The uh, current book is uh, Because I Said So, The Truth Behind the Myths, Tales, Warnings Every Generation Passes Down to Its Kids. Ken Jennings is the author. and uh, Ken Jennings, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Holly Strand. There's a small but very engaging museum underneath the public library in Hiram, Utah. This museum showcases a number of artifacts reflecting the history, customs, and environment of Cache Valley. When I first visited in 2009, a couple of odd items caught my eye. One was a five-inch diameter hairball that had formed in the stomach of a Cache Valley cow. Such hairballs are called bezoars, a Persian word meaning antidote. 
For centuries, bezoars were believed to be a universal antidote that could neutralize any poison. The other odd item at the museum was a camel tooth. A cow hairball can seem geographically appropriate as an exhibit feature, as Cache Valley has plenty of cows. But why would a camel tooth be in a museum about the history of northern Utah? Well, it turns out that this particular tooth belonged to a native Utah camel species. It most likely came from what we now call yesterday's camel, or western camel, which lived over 10,000 years ago. This camel was 20% larger than a dromedary and had a longer, narrower head and thick muscled lips. Its foot pad was soft and toes were splayed, foreshadowing the foot structure of modern camels. We don't really know whether or not it had a hump. Remains of this Pleistocene ancestor have been found throughout the American West and in a number of Utah locations. Many people are surprised to learn that camels are a purely North American invention first appearing some 40 to 50 million years ago. At the peak of their North American career, during the Miocene, there were 13 genera of camels. Overall, at least 95 species and 36 genera have been described for this continent alone. The earliest camel was no more than two feet high. After that, we find that camel legs and necks grew longer to allow for browsing on trees and shrub tops. One particular species, Epicamelus giraffinus stood 19 feet high. Essentially, this camel had become America's giraffe on what was then a Serengeti-like grassland. Other camels resembled gazelles and still others looked more like the camelids of today. Four million years ago, camelids first crossed the land bridge to Eurasia. Living in Eurasian deserts, they evolved into arid land specialists with remarkable physiological capacity for water conservation. Other North American camelids drifted south to colonize South America. They evolved in today's llamas, guanacos, alpacas, and vicuñas, all high-altitude grazing specialists. After a few waves of migration, camels suddenly vanished from their birthplace. In fact, much of North America's megafauna suddenly vanished in the late Pleistocene. Perhaps due to hum human hunting, perhaps climate change, we may never know for sure. But one thing is clear to me now, a camel tooth definitely has a place in a Utah history museum. For more information and sources and a link to the Hiram Museum, go to www.wildaboututah.org. For Wild About Utah, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.